Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. It has been not quite a month since the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or as she became known to many of her many admirers in her last years, the notorious RBG. Although she has been dead only a few weeks, the political world has moved on rapidly, with President Trump already having nominated her successor and the Republican majority in the U.S. Senate moving quickly to confirm the nominee. But on today's episode of Beyond Your Newsfeed, we want to stop and remember Justice Ginsburg and the contributions she made to American law and life, particularly in advancing equal rights for women. For this conversation on Justice Ginsburg's life and legacy, I've invited two colleagues well-versed in issues of justice and equality so central to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. First, Assistant Professor of Political Science, Paul Heron, our department's constitutional law and Supreme Court expert, who listeners may remember from a previous Beyond Your News feed episode some months ago. And second, I am pleased to welcome for her first visit to the podcast, Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of PC's Women's Studies Program, Abigail Brooks. Abigail Paul, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. So I'd like to begin, Abigail, if you could say maybe a little something about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's biography and sort of the key moments in, in her own life and how they have contributed to uh, her, you know, eventually her jurisprudence and her career uh, as a jurist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that um, it was, you know, I enjoyed um, listening um, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg talk about um, her relationship to her mother, right, first and foremost as a young girl um, and a teenager and how her mother taught her um, the importance of um, being independent as a woman um, and sort of forging your own path as a woman um, and not being dependent um, on others in terms of um, livelihood um, and sort of determining life goals. Um, and it was interesting, she also talks about how her mother um, sort of taught her about um, expressing herself rationally um, and without a lot of emotion or anger, um, which certainly, you know, bodes well for work in the law um, in terms of um, doing lawyerly work. Um, but, you know, her mother passed when she was only 17, um, just before she was set to celebrate her high school graduation. Um, and the way she talks about her mother as, as sort of formative um, and her strength, I think, as an individual um, is very much, um, you know, what, what I would frame as kind of um, a liberal feminist perspective, right? This idea of kind of freedom of the individual, um, individual above and before gender, um, you know, individual rights, um, this idea of kind of uh, women um, being more alike men than different. Um, and, you know, kind of women can do everything uh, that men can do and largely vice versa, which informed a lot of her um, 
her early um, kind of arguments um, in her work for the ACLU um, when she was really, really centering her work on gender discrimination and the law. Um, but I think also just um, her own lived experience of being, you know, one of very, very few um, students at Harvard Law School. I think there were nine students among 500, nine female students among, among 500 students at Harvard Law uh, when she was there in the 1950s. Um, one of the very first um, classes of women, if not the first, I'm not sure, maybe Paul or Bill, you can correct me there. Um, but uh, again, just being one of very few women at Harvard Law um, and, you know, not at first not being allowed into one of the key law libraries there, um, you know, either not being called on a lot in class, you know, with the Socratic method kind of being ignored or when being called on, um, feeling Isn't like there, there was a lot. There's this anecdote of, of when she first arrived. Yes. Uh, Dean holds this, holds this dinner with the nine women. Yeah. Uh, students yeah. and goes around the table and requires that each of them justify why they're occupying a seat that a, a man could be. In. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, pretty, pretty unbelievable to kind of conceive of um, today in 2020. Um, but yeah, I think all of those things were, were formative. I was going to say too that, um, you know, she was, she, she, when she started Harvard Law, she was already married to her amazing um, supportive husband, Marty, you know, that she had met at Cornell and she had a young child. So she was navigating um, her intellectual work and um, sort of, you know, course of study along with, you know, parenting and then taking care of her husband when he became ill um, with cancer, you know, during her time in law school, when they were both in law school together, together at Harvard. Um, I think a lot of this um, just, you know, was, was, was formative for her um, as, as a woman and a woman sort of juggling these different roles intellectually, as mother, as caretaker. Um, but yeah, I think that the other thing I was going to say was um, that, you know, when she graduated um, from Columbia Law, in the end, she ended up moving to New York um, because her husband got a job his first job out of law school in New York, and she ended up finishing there um, so she could be with him. Um, and um, that, that all made sense at the time. Um, but I think it was just so um, shocking to her uh, when she was not able to get a single job in, in the entire you know, New York City area in law um, after you know, having completed her law degree um, and being such a standout in so many ways. I mean, she was asked to be on the Harvard Law Review her second year there um, because she was so near the top of her class. Um, and so I think that, again, just kind of um, her beliefs in women can do anything men can do um, if they show they're intellectually capable. Um, was, those beliefs were challenged um, pretty much off the bat for her when she first attempted to glean her first professional position as a lawyer uh, right out of law school. Um, and so just again and again and again, bumping up against um, that explanation of, we're not going to hire you because you're a woman, because you're a woman, because you're a woman, because you're a woman. And hearing that over and over and over again, um, and just how much that kind of, you know, just flew in the face of everything that she had believed around, I'm an individual, I'm going to prove myself as an intellectual equal to the men um, in my law school classes, um, and then kind of bumping up against this overt discrimination just simply 
around the category female, right? Um, can, I, can I add one yes. thing? Yes, oh, go ahead, Paul, sorry, I'm, I mean, I'm very I, no, 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 I, I, no, I love it, and I, and I want you to continue this narrative. I just wanted to point out, and you, you've already pointed this out, but I wanted to uh, point it out again. Yeah. She did not just show that she was equal to the men in her classes, no. she showed that she was superior to them. Exactly. That's the kind of amazing yeah. thing about her. And it's not, you know, she didn't just go in there and make it through, right? No. She didn't just go in there and kind of, uh, you know, graduate. She went in there and beat everybody and she still couldn't get a job. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of mind blowing that that, 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 that was happening. Um, so anyway, I just, I, I just, I just, Oh, absolutely. Just, Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, she did just compete on an equal playing field. I can't remember if she was at the top of her class. Top, or Harvard. I, I think she I was think, around the top at Harvard and at, and, at, and at the absolute top at Columbia. At Columbia, right? Yes. So, exactly. I mean, she was, she was yes. the top. She was the, she top, was top, the top. best. Yeah, she was. Go ahead. And Bill, did you want to there add? also an incident that, that she, uh, the, the Harvard had this tradition that if you, finished the first two years and then had to go somewhere else. You could come back and still get a Harvard degree. And evidently that was pretty routine for male graduates, but exactly. they refused right, but the they standards refused. were all different. Give her a degree. The, the standards changed as a result of her, her gender, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And not just, not just being a woman, but, but being in a kind of okay. severe uh, minority status in in her class right so it's not even it's not even this, just that you know the women were getting discriminated against it's the nine women out of yeah. 500 something women yeah were being, i mean it's 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 kind of um it, it's it's crazy yeah and abigail i was you you mentioned uh all the responsibilities she had in law school with her sick husband and a child yes, yes. uh and having to balance all these roles, uh, you know, tremendously, tremendous hard work she had to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and she, of course, had a reputation throughout her life of, of being this sort of very focused, hard worker, you know, yeah. and she, she sort of demonstrated there. I don't know, you want to say a little something more about her relationship with her husband? Because he seems to have yeah. been himself a, a remarkable fellow for that era. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you asked about, about Marty. And absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, she demonstrated in law school in, you know, taking care of her child, taking care of Marty when he was sick, taking on a lot of Marty's coursework for him or, you know, taking notes from his classes and helping him continue on his course of study that she sort of want, was one of these women that could um, could do it all in a way, <laughs> you know, these kind of super women um, who were juggling so much. And she, she's, she was always, in, up until her passing, really um, known for needing very little sleep, you know, oftentimes staying up till three or four in the morning, getting up early. Um, and I love the story of their relationship, though. I'm so glad you asked, Bill, because, you know, it was really a story of equality in heterosexual marriage, you know, which we really, really didn't see a lot of um, at that time. Um, you know, he was the one who cooked, you know, she was the one who thought, you know, that's how he often described it, right? You know, she has the brain, you know, I'm good in the kitchen, you know, and, you know, yes. hearing, hearing their children speak, 
about how the division of labor in the home was entirely equal. And in some ways, you know, he was doing more of the traditional, you know, 1950s, 1960s, you know, housewife, um, nurturing, caring um, homework, right, than she was. She was doing the intellectual labor. Um, but yeah, it was a very egalitarian marriage. Um, and, you know, he, he took such pride in supporting her intellectual work. I, I love the stories about he, how he would be the one who would go get her at the office and say, it's time for dinner, Ruth. You need to come home and take a break. You really got to come home and eat. And then the same for coming down and getting her and saying, you do need to get to bed. You need to get some sleep, right? And it's such a turning on the head of those, you know, traditional stereotypes about, you know, the wife saying it's time to come home for dinner, honey, or it's time to eat dinner. The man, the, the husband is nurturer. Right? <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. And he, he loved talking about their roles. He took pride in his role and her role. And I love the way she talks about too, how they would trade off. They were really, um, you know, they were, they were mutually sharing. It was an egalitarian relationship. She followed him to New York for his first job, you know, as a tax attorney. Then he followed her right back to DC when Carter appointed her at the US Court of Appeals in 1980, the DC circuit, right? And she would get questions like, how are you commuting from New York to DC? That assumption, right? You know, that the husband wouldn't follow um, the wife and put her career first. Um, and so it's lovely. I love listening to her interviews where she talks about how they were, you know, how they were dividing and conquering um, the kind of work home um, demands and raising of children, but in, in this really um, supportive and kind of mutually supportive egalitarian way. Um, and he just took such pride in her work in the law. I mean, he, you know, he was always the one who was pushing for her. He was the one who, you know, kept trying to get her name floated out there, you know, for Clinton to consider um, as a Supreme Court nominee. Um, and, sure. you know, Clinton he was, appointed her in 1993 to the three. Supreme Court. Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and evidently was, was kind of hesitant about that. And it was her husband was the big advocate behind the scenes to get Clinton to come around and, in fact, consider her and eventually appoint her. Lucky for Clinton, uh, he's probably going to remember more for appointing Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> than just about anything else. It's the his biggest achievement. I but, know. It's a positive legacy there. Yeah, I guess he was worried that maybe she was a little bit too old or, you know, but I, I love, it, it was great that he was so impressed with her once he actually sat down and started law you know he was you know entirely wowed which of which of course he would but um but yeah I love the fact that her husband talks about her as the brain and it's sort of like when people ask well what do you contribute to the relationship like you said Bill it's more about the nurturance right, right. Um, and she's sort of the intellect and that's really turning on its head some of those traditional very limited tropes about you know male and female roles um, in the 1950s early 60s in particular but okay. yeah I'd like to bring Paul in here a bit and begin talking about her, her uh, legal contributions. Yeah. And uh, Paul, you want to maybe begin with the work she did. I think this is probably uh, what she's most known for before she joined the court uh, in the 1970s with the ACLU uh, Women's Rights Project, yes. which she actually set up, right, Paul? Yeah, I, she was involved in the setup and then running it. And she, you know, it, it, it's kind of, you know, I often think about the fact that she was the first um, 
justice appointed to the court um, since uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, by a Democratic president, right? So it had been all Republican nominees between the two of them. And it's kind of amazing to think about, but that's the case. And in many ways, her career mirrored Thurgood Marshall's career, right? She, he was an advocate for civil rights. Um, he worked for the NAACP. She was an advocate for gender rights and really for the rights of all minorities. But um, she was particularly effective in uh, pushing for gender equality. And, and just she, to jump in here for a minute, Paul. Yes. And she actually, she argued cases before the Supreme Court. It, she, is that, that's not all that common for Supreme Court appointees, is it? That they've had experience uh, arguing cases. It's not that common for, for someone to, to reach the level in their legal career that they're arguing before the Supreme Court. Right. right? So it's a small, it's a pretty small group of people. And often the people who are arguing before the Supreme Court are already so advanced in their careers, right? If you've reached the point where you're arguing before the Supreme Court, you're kind of at the pinnacle of your career. You're not, you're not kind of, um, you know, on track to be a justice. I mean, the interesting thing is the, the nomination process has changed a lot over the past 50 years, but even over the past 20 or 30 years, um, and it's become much more strategic about who's going to be on the court. And you can see that in, in the, in the, really in the nominees uh, since George Bush became president. And everyone, everyone's afraid that they're going to nominate someone who's not going to uh, be consistent ideologically. Uh, they're worried that they're going to nominate someone who potentially won't get confirmed. So you have this very narrow slice of people that get nominated to the court and they all have very similar biographies. They all went to the same schools. Uh, they often worked in government in some capacity before they're nominated. Uh, they um, sometimes worked in private practice, but always kind of at the top of their field. They often clerked for uh federal judges or justices. But yeah, I can't think of that many cases where you have someone who is a noted advocate before the court, other than Marshall, um, who ends up on the court the way Ginsburg did. Yeah. So I interrupt you. You were telling us about these cases in the 1970s. Uh, and and what, what were those about? What was the really the objective of the Women's Rights Project? Well, I mean, the objective is to get the court to treat gender the way it was treating race in terms of constitutional scrutiny. I, I don't want to get too in the weeds here about levels of scrutiny, but it's, it's not that complicated, really. So the idea is the court has different ways of looking at laws passed by legislatures, by, con by Congress or by state legislatures. Um, the kind of loosest interpretation is called a rational basis. And they say, if the legislature had a good reason for passing the law, then there's not really a cause for the court to overturn it. And that's limited to cases of kind of economic decisions and kind of general laws, right? If you, as you kind of move up, if, you, if we jump to the very top uh, level of scrutiny, it's called strict scrutiny. And that's where uh, a legislature might pass a law that um, affects one race or uh, one religion uh, differently than others. And 
they call it strict scrutiny. It sounds like it just means the justices are looking very closely at it. What it really, in essence, means is that the law is likely going to fail if you're examining it with strict scrutiny. It means that we don't accept differences in race, so that laws cannot reflect differences in race. Um, they also use strict scrutiny if there's a law that is impinging on one of our kind of fundamental rights under the Bill of Rights. Um, but what Ginsburg wanted was for there to be a heightened level of scrutiny. She wanted gender to be on par with race because of the historic discrimination that, that women have faced um, in America and in, 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 in world history. But she's, you know, if we're talking about the Constitution, uh, based on the Equal Protection Clause from the, the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what she did, and she, you know, she really was a, a kind of um, intellectual force. And it, 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 she was strategic in the kinds of cases that she backed and the things that she supported. And in some of the cases that she brought to highlight gender discrimination, it was men who were being discriminated against. And it wasn't really that the men were being discriminated against. It was often that women were being protected by kind of paternalistic laws, right? It was like, uh, you know, there was one case where um, uh, men could buy, no, I, I, women could buy a certain alcohol con couldn't could yeah. buy a certain alcohol content, but men couldn't because and it's so it's it's those kinds of kind of small cases. But she she came in fighting for um, men. But really, what she's fighting for is to get the justices to look carefully at gender distinctions made by the law. Mm -hmm. And the, the result uh, of those efforts in the 1970s and then that are codified really in her first big decision on the court in U.S. versus Virginia is that gender now enjoys a kind of heightened uh, status in terms of judicial scrutiny. The court is going to be uh, suspicious if a law affects one gender differently than the other. Yeah. Um, she, she also was brilliant in understanding that if she had the justices look at these cases where men were being yes. adversely affected, yeah. that all these male justices uh, yeah. would, would understand better uh, yeah, it's brilliant. It, it, than, if, than, if, than if it was women. It was a brilliant strategy because her, obviously she's not worried about this kind of generic, like we don't need to make laws that, that hurt men, right? But it's mm -hmm. that she wanted to kind of really open the eyes of the court and say, look, you can't write laws that affect one gender different, differently than other. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just go ahead jump in. Sorry, I was just gonna say that I think, yeah, it was, it was a brilliant strategy and just kind of thinking of it in terms of, um, you know, strands of feminism. I mean, it's a, it's a very liberal feminist strategy that, you know, was, used from the very beginning of the early suffrage movement, even in 1848 with Anne Preston's address at the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, very much this idea that, you know, women and men are equal before the law, deserve equal protection before the law, um, and that, you know, women and men are much more alike than different, and they need to be seen as individuals first, and, you know, again, have equal rights before the law as individuals. And I think that it was very brilliant the way she was looking at how both men and women were discriminated against um, based on these ideological conceptions of fundamental difference in many respects between women and men, 
um, and she was really pushing back, I think, very effectively um, and resisting against this um, ideology of biological essentialism and difference and their and difference being really about, you know, superiority and inferiority. Um, so I think it was really, really brilliant the way she was um, the way she was 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 using the law and taking men's cases on and women's cases on you know that first case in 1973 um with the woman who was in the air force and didn't get the same kind of housing stipends that the men got right who were married and she's like well i want my stipend for my husband you know the women are getting it for their wives but then she takes on other cases you know where men aren't given um, some of the stipends, the social security, some of the other state benefits for their child after they've lost their wife who passed away in childbirth, whereas women would be given, right, those kind of stipends from the state because of this conception of the woman as the nurturer and the mother. Um, and even, you know, women um, being able to opt out of serving jur jury duty, which in the last cases um, when she was working for the ACL ACLU, maybe in the 1978 or 9. And um, again, this idea that, well, you know, women should, you know, women, women are just as capable of serving on juries. They should have to be, right, um, you know, beholden to the same, you know, legal requirements as men um, and not, not be able to opt out because of the assumption that they're different from men or that they're the ones who need to be home with the children. Um, so it was such a brilliant strategy just to echo, you know, what, what Paul is saying around um, this idea of equal rights, equal protections before the law um, as individuals, right? Um, and um, again, just very interesting to me in terms of kind of some of the philosophy of liberal feminism and how it echoes very, very strongly, you know, way, way, way back, um, you know, people like John Locke and philosophers that were very influential in the writing of the Constitution. So, um, but the way she's using um, those arguments um, were, were so effective. Yeah, Paul, you mentioned a minute ago that this, uh, this, this project of making gender, uh, not, not necessarily greater scrutiny, really culminated in this famous uh, case of Virginia versus the United States after she was a justice, yeah. where she wrote the very famous majority opinion. You want to tell us a little more about the details of that case and, and why that, that's so significant? That, that, that's the case where you have um, a, a Virginia Military Institute, which is a publicly funded military college in Virginia that uh, did not admit women. They tried to, in, in a kind of sad attempt at skirting requirements or, or, or equality, they tried to create some kind of separate uh, women's program that didn't... Separate but equal. <laughs> yeah, it was indeed separate but equal. It was similar to the, ways, the way that, uh, you know, they created these kind of phony law schools uh, that would allow African-Americans to... Uh, to to be admitted to, and they were just, it, it didn't, it was a shadow of the, of the kind of primary institution. And um, so this is a, uh, this is a case where you have a kind of argument about a really traditional military college um, that it's not clear that this is going to be something, this is, this is something, this is going to be something that is going to be sturdy and, and difficult, I think, to, um, to kind of break down these gender bar barriers around. And she was able to kind of, um, if you listen to the oral arguments in there, it's, it's, they're, they're particularly well done and particularly 
the, her questioning, right? She's uh, Ted Olson, who's argued so many cases before the court, uh, was arguing on behalf of Virginia, and he just didn't have good answers for her on, on why women couldn't participate at BMI. Um, she manages to get, uh, I believe it was seven to one. I think Thomas had a, I think Thomas had to recuse himself because one of his kids was at BMI. Um, but Scalia was in dissent, but she got, she got six to join her. And it was, um, a kind of triumphant moment because she, I mean, I mentioned that case earlier about the alcohol content and women could buy beer with higher alcohol kind of it's called Craig versus Bourne. It's not a very um, kind of majestic case, right? They used a kind of intermediate level of scrutiny in that. This is the case that really codifies it. And the beauty of that is that she writes the opinion and she was the architect of it as an attorney. So it's not just that Ruth Bader Ginsburg gets on the court and writes this opinion that um, that kind of elevates gender uh, in terms of constitution, constitutional protection. It's that she gets on the court after being someone who had advocated for this very thing as an attorney yeah. in her private practice, in her work with the ACLU, in her work uh, before the Supreme Court. So it's kind of... Um, it's this soaring achievement and it happens very early in her, in her tenure. And it's uh, um, so it's, it's special for a variety of reasons, not just that it kind of broke down barriers and elevated gender under constitutional protections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I love that case too, just because it's empowering um, for women. And again, um, you know, her making the argument that, um, you know, that women, um, can perform, can achieve, you know, can, can um, exhibit and, um, you know, activate physicality, strength, skill sets uh, that were, you know, often conceived of as being something that were reserved for men and exclusively something that men could do better than women, right? So just this whole, this whole thing in terms of how important it is for um, women um, and, you know, women today, women in my classes, you know, that case just that, again, like women are able to go to perform, to achieve, to do well alongside their male peers. Um, and so, yeah, very, very important. And it's, it's, I was just going to say too, that, you know, it, it's, I, I love the fact that, you know, she, she was just so, took such pride in the graduates of, of this, you know, this military institute, academy, VMI, and just, you know, have, has pictures of them and talks about what, what they're doing now, you know, the women graduates up through very recently, engineers, uh, you know, all kinds of different career paths um, that women are forging as the result of, you know, being, being graduates from um, Virginia Military Institute. So um, that, that was just such, a, such an important case, I think, um, you know, for, for women coming of age in the mid to late 1990s, I think it was 1996. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, that, and the, that's the, very, very interesting, Abigail. Essentially, you're, you're saying here's, uh, here's a, an example of the law having this immense cultural impact. That, exactly. That that by by uh, by in in this case, essentially, uh, the whole culture is now informed that the notion that you can simply exclude women because yeah. of some, you know, archaic notion of 
exactly. This is only suitable for men. Uh, that uh, that is not the starting point, uh, exactly. as Paul said in the VMI case exactly. when it's first brought. You know, here's a military academy that's supposed to be a manly thing. Uh, nobody starts that there anymore. And now we have women serving in the military, even in combat roles. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, we can't say that the, the battle is won, but right. certainly the, the starting point for any discussion yes. is so way beyond what it was as recently as 1996. Absolutely, yeah. And the starting point being that women and men can perform, you know, equally um, in these kinds of zones. And yeah, that being more of where we're starting from, right? So yeah, no, absolutely. So important. That was such an impactful, impactful decision. The beauty of that opinion also is all of what you're saying is true. It's soaring and it's inspirational. And I've read and heard stories about women oh, yeah. uh, in the, in the, hearing her read from the bench and, and crying, just thinking about the kind of implications of this and the fact that she got such a large majority. But it's also like, like everything she did in her career and like everything she did on the bench before and after that, it's intellectually rigorous. It's extraordinarily yeah. difficult oh, to poke holes in. And so that's, you know, that's the thing that's so, you know, I, one of the things that I love most about that opinion, and it's kind of a silly thing to say, but it's just so smart. Um, and it's, um, so it's, you know, it's, it, it doesn't just achieve what she was hoping to achieve. It does so, um, uh, you know, w with a really kind of impressive um, bit of rhetoric and legal argument. Oh, yeah. Brilliantly using the law. I mean, that makes it so satisfying to... Um, you know, um, from from your perspective and mine, <laughs> as as somebody who's pushing for for equal rights um, for all. So yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So so Ruth Bader Ginsburg now has this reputation as sort of this giant liberal jurist. Mm -hmm. You know, she was the the, the the now that's her reputation. Yet when she was first appointed by Clinton in 1993. Uh, there were many liberal and feminist groups that were a little mm -hmm. concerned, right? We're not certain of her. Uh, mm -hmm. What's that about? Why, why would liberals and even feminist groups not be certain of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1993? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, it, it might be partly because, um, I mean, she, she wasn't an activist. She wasn't, um, you know, somebody who was on the front lines of, you know, the second wave of, of the women's movement. Um, you know, she came to the women's movement, you know, on the later side. Um, I mean, she taught that course, women in the law or gender in the law at Rutgers, I think not till 68 or 69 after she'd been there since 1963. And that was because women law students were asking her for it. You know, <laughs> they were pushing her and saying, we really want a course on gender in the law. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's also partly because her arguments, um, uh, she did all this work for, for gender equality through you write the law and arguing arguing the law um, with her work um, at the ACLU throughout the 70s. Um, but but her position, you know, might be described as more of a liberal feminist position, um, not so much as a, you know, a more um, cultural ra or radical feminist kind of positionality. Um, she was sort of wanting to make, you know, make changes within the system to bring women in as opposed to maybe more transformational 
um, changes in some respects that I think some some women of that era were pushing for. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not really too well versed in why uh, she wasn't warmly received um, by sort of all um, all women or all all women's groups. I think she's become much more of a figure <laughs> associated with women's empowerment and um, you know gender justice and equality, sort of um, in a more um, overt way in the last five years or so. We could talk about that. I know you were interested in maybe getting to that as well, Bill. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, she was an incrementalist. She was, you know, pragmatic. Um, you know, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't pushing for transformational change, um, you know, all at once. And, you know, she was pretty candid about that. She wasn't out on the streets either, um, you know, with a lot of the protests of the 70s um, around women's rights. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there was also, I think, that um, talk that she gave at NYU Law um, in the early 1990s, um, talking about Roe v. Wade in particular, um, and, and women's reproductive rights, and wondering if a better approach would have been kind of more of the model that was utilized outside of the US and a lot of European nation states, for example, which was more centered in the legislature, um, and building law right through Congress, both at the national level, level and the state level, instead of through the Supreme Court, right, in terms of Roe v. Wade in 1973. Um, and her arguments as to why that might have been a better route, I think were in part because the country could have kind of been brought along more gradually <laughs> around understanding reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And that was something that she believed maybe had more long lasting effects, right, than this one. Well, and, and, that's, and that's more like the approach she took uh, with gender. Exactly. Generally it was gradual, incremental, and then eventually, you know, maybe she saw that would happen with, uh, with she, reproductive rights. She also argued exactly. that she also argued that Roe versus Wade, because it was such a kind of sweeping decision Thanks. when it was made, um, and because of the the law that it was anchored in, this yeah. so-called right to privacy, right, which is which is debatable, right? It continues yeah. to be. Oh, do you believe in the right to privacy, right? Yes. And that's yes. kind of that kind of becomes this um, this proxy for yeah, asking exactly. whether or not you believe that you know, exactly. abortion should be legal or that Roe v. Wade was exactly. rightly decided. So exactly. her, her idea was that, um, that reproductive rights should be anchored in the Equal Protection Clause. Yeah. And you can't have any debate about whether or not the Equal Protection Clause is in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I think there was some, you're right, there was criticism. And I think that Abigail's 100% right that this, this is wrapped around her, uh, kind of approach uh, mm -hmm. as an incrementalist and as someone who's yeah. not who who want, but it's also the, it's also kind of her her um, her kind of strategic yes. notion of change, yeah. and so you know I think feminists and others who are kind of nervous about her appointment to the court, I think we're not nervous about her appointment to the court after uh, cases came before the court and yeah. she had to weigh in on abortion rights. And if you, you know, it sounds like it, it's really actually just a bunch of kind of inside baseball with lawyers arguing about, you know, should this have been based on equal protection or should this have been based on the right to privacy? She believed fundamentally in the rights that they were talking about. Um, so so um, I think the, the fears that people had were 
uh, ended up being unjustified. And I think most people um, ended up thinking that at the end of the day. I, she was also known for her friendships with conservative jurists, like with the famous friendship with Antonin Scalia, who was her, who, they were on the opposite side of just about every opinion, right? But they evidently were great personal friends. They yeah. both liked the opera, even, right? She was yeah. even friendly with Robert Bork when she was yeah. on the DC circuit, right? So mm -hmm. she was not, uh, she was not someone who, who was so ideologically committed that she couldn't talk to people who she disagreed with. She was also extraordinarily confident in her own uh, intellect, right? So, and, and she was interested in the arguments. So, you know, yeah, I think exactly. a lot of people can't separate themselves. If, 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 you, if, you are, if you're an activist and you pour your whole life into one side of an issue, it's, it's very hard to acknowledge any, um, anything that's right about the arguments that are presented on the other side. She seems like going back forever to be someone who's just extraordinarily bright and someone who could understand um, arguments and enjoyed picking them apart. So I, you know, I could almost see her enjoying a friendship with someone who disagreed with her on everything because it was, it, it could be a kind of intellectual back and forth. Um, and that's, I mean, you know, I don't have any particular insight into her, but that's, you know, that's, that's my impression that she's someone who is able to kind of separate herself emotionally from mm -hmm. arguments and from, from, from the law. And Paul, mm -hmm. that's kind of the model of what we would like the, yeah. court, the court to be, right? Oh, but sure. These right. justices yeah. arguing yeah. about, you know, yeah. intellectual arguments about the law and not just adopting a sort of ideological position and rationalizing it. Sure. That's... Yeah. And she talked too, just about how much she enjoyed the collegiality um, on the court and, um, you know, again, her friendships with particularly with Scalia and his sense of humor, they had fun together, you know, he made her laugh, like you said, they shared the interest of opera, they traveled together. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get to this in a minute, but I, I think, um, you know, a lot of those aspects of fundamentally who she was, like what Paul's saying around, you know, just being such a lawyer in those ways, like just really loving the intellectual arguments and wanting to hear all sides as opposed to getting ideologically caught, caught up in a way that might become a barrier, right? Or make, make it unable to, make you unable to engage in conversation. Um, but I think that those aspects of her, of who she was uh, were really challenged in the last few years, um, you know, since 2016, um, which is interesting because that was when she first kind of made a comment about, you know, the president and elect and some kind of, um, you know, ways that that were um, a bit more critical. And, um, you know, she started being known as the dissenter, right, even before that, um, which wasn't, you know, kind of how she saw herself in her early years on the court. She liked to think of herself as a consensus builder, um, as somebody who took pride in the majority writing, um, majority opinion writing. So I think that that's um, interesting in terms of how, um, you know, and also how she sort of became more of a figure for, for women and feminists around always wanting to read her dissents, you know. Um, so that's, a, that's another um, sort of her last wave, I think, um, which, is, which is interesting. Um, but I just wanted to go back to something Paul said, too. I totally agree that um, that the critique she got and Bill, your question about feminists not 
all embracing her um, in the beginning of her tenure on the court. Um, I think some of her um, her rationales for um, sort of looking at Roe v. Wade critically were more along the lines of worrying about its vulnerability than anything else um, in terms of its permanency and seeing how it could be it could be chipped away at and eroded, which in many ways has has happened. Um, and I also just wanted to echo Paul's point around how I think her time on the court from 1993 on, on the Supreme Court, um, has really um, more and more and more wedded her to the hearts of people working in the women's movement and for women's rights and gender justice in terms of her decisions over the years, um, you know, both with the majority and her dissents. So I think that that's... And, and maybe we should, that, that's a good, good point to maybe bring up her sort of broader popularity yeah. in yeah. the last few years of her life where she became this uh, cult figure, this person on social media who is uh, just praised and little girls dressing up like her and, and all of that. I don't know, as, as a, from a women's <laughs> studies perspective, how do, we, how do we understand that, Abigail? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that. I mean, the whole kind of like notor notorious um, RGB um, uh, just mantle that she was given um, was, I think, first coined and, and developed by some, or one NYU law student, a, a female NYU law student, um, and then taken up by other by other young people. Um, but um, But yeah, that happened after her, um, dissent, I think, in 2013 with the kind of gutting of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, um, people were um, just really impassioned by, you know, back to Paul's point, just sort of by the rigor and the power of, of her of her dissent and that whole metaphor she used about the umbrella in the rain and that, you know, by gutting the Voting Rights Act, um, it was like getting getting rid of having an umbrella in a rainstorm. Um, so anyway, I think that sort of really struck a chord, um, particularly with, you know, younger law students who were um, maybe in more um, progressive law programs. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, the that 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 sort of popularity um, among young people, um, I think has just been growing and started around 2013. And then, um, you know, she had some other very powerful um, dissents and write-ups and um, even write-ups. What do you call it when somebody writes an additional opinion to the majority? Um, to make the yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. So doing some of that work um, centered particularly in reproductive um, rights for women, I think in 2000, one of the 2016 um, rulings um, with um, whole woman's health versus Hellerstead. Yes. Um, so I think that, you know, it's really been growing since 2013. That's sort of when we mark the beginning of it, um, when we talk about her in, in, our, um, in our WGS in, intro classes. Um, but I think that um, also just, you know, this era where a lot of women feel um, with the, you know, the, the election of President Trump and then um, some of what's happened under his watch, um, you know, some of um, the concerns about his own lived experience and his treatment of women. And then with the Kavanaugh hearings in 2018 in the fall and before that in the fall of 2017, the Me Too movement. Um, growing and, um, you know, breaking onto the stage. Um, again, I, th I just think it's a time when people are really hungry and looking for 
um, you know, role models um, and role models of high stature and, you know, where better to find one um, than this incredible woman on the court, on the highest court in the land. Um, so I think it's um, interesting that it coincides with her role more and more as somebody who had to write the dissents and who wanted to dissent and who started saying, I dissent in her write-ups as opposed to I respectfully dissent. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, that that's, that's, that's just part of why she so, so ha became so important was there was kind of um, a backlash, um, at least in many women's conceptions when it came to um, issues of women's rights um, in the last few years. And so her sort of presence on the court and her voice became that much more important. And she, she read that voting rights dissent from the bench. Oh, so powerful. Kind of rare, rare. So, so, yeah. uh, but also, you know, her, her life uh, is a great story too. I mean, I, oh, so I saw there were two movies in, was it 2018? The, there was a documentary. Yep, RBG. And then there was, uh, on the basis of sex. The, great movie. Uh, which is, a, you know, like a little biopic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are just fascinating stories that, that I think can be, can be inspiring. Uh, you know, the irony of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that strategically she was not really a very good uh, Supreme Court pick for Bill Clinton just based on her age. Yeah. Right? that she was 60 when he nominated her. Yeah. If you think about it this way, Clarence Thomas came on the court uh, before she did. Yes. And he's, and he's said, he's now just said he's 15 years younger than her. Wow. And so, you know, she, there's some people, it's like you run in your, 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 your year of birth doesn't work, work out well with which presidents are in power. Right. And so she, she might've been one of those people who didn't, ascend to a higher court because Republicans were in power uh, mm -hmm. for, uh, for all of the 1980s and into 92. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of this wonderful thing that Clinton took a chance and nominated someone uh, who was her age because she ultimately becomes this towering figure uh, mm -hmm. on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, you know, it's kind of the cap of that, of that, um, really amazing life story that, that you mentioned, Bill. And it's, mm -hmm. so it's, but it's one of those things where I can, nobody is going to be nominating anyone who's 60 from here on out. I promise. Yeah. Notice her replacement is, yeah. I think, I think 48. 48. Yeah, 48. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and you know, it, it's just when, when the court is being used to hold on to political power, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, you don't want to take a chance on someone who is old. You want to have someone who's going to be on there for many years. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. fortunate that, that Bill Clinton wasn't thinking that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would ask, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was just going to say too, that, you know, it's, um, I think that it's, it's, you know, it's just partly, you know, that the, the climate and the positionality and the ideologies on the Supreme Court moved right, you know, over the arc of her career there. Um, and so she, you know, back to your original question, Bill, about, you know, why this, this, this like incredible, you know, pop culture popularity of RGB um, and, you know, little girls dressing up um, as her for Halloween and all of this. And I think part of it is just, 
you know, the court moved right. And, you know, maybe she also started to move a bit left, but in many ways she was doing what she had always done. Um, but her voice was just that much more important um, because she was one of those voices um, that were, you know, symbolizing progressivism and liberalism for women um, in a chilly climate, you know, culturally increasingly and also on the court um, in terms of moving, moving right, that climate on the court. Um, and also, I just wanted to say, you know, she, she, she was one of only three women, you know, um, up into her death last month. And, you know, she would always say, how many women is enough women? Or she would always say when asked, how many women is enough women? And she would say nine. There have been nine men on the court, you know, for so many years. I'd love for us to get to, to, get to nine women. And, you know, for a, a, a portion of her time, she was the only woman on the court, um, you know, after um, Sandra Day O'Connor passed, before the new iteration of appointees and, and um uh, you know, uh, that came on with, with Obama, um, with now that the, there were three women when she passed um, with Sotomayor and Kagan and herself. But I think that just being one of three women on the court um, points to how far we have yet to go, but also just how important she was um, as a figure uh, for young women um, and girls. Um, so I think that that's, you know, important to point out um, as well. And her talking about cultural impact that even conservatives feel compelled to appoint women too. So, oh, exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Absolutely. and her role as a dissenter. Yes. Um, really, she she moves to um, instead of trying to to kind of bring the court along, which she starts to recognize is not going to be possible right. because of the rightward shift. She she begins to write. For the future, which is ironic because she's the old, yeah. oldest person on the court, and she's and she's writing for the next generation. Um, mm -hmm. So, and you know, in some ways, it's kind of you're exactly right. She was not she was not on the far left of the court when she left, and it's unclear how much the movement of the other members of the court uh, relative to her own movement resulted yeah. in her new position. Because I think it was right. a little of both. It wasn't I think it was a little of both too. Yeah. I Totally agree. Yeah. And it's also, I just wanted to say something back, like from the, the, the perspective of like how she's important to women and young women, um, you know, her relationship um, with her, particularly with her granddaughter, who also went to Harvard Law and graduated, I think, in 2017. And I think it was that class that for the first time at Harvard Law was, you know, entirely 50-50 you know, female, male, and it took that long, you know, um, to, um, to <laughs> reach a point where <laughs> there were 50% women in the graduating class of Harvard Law. And so, um, you know, again, like, progress, um, but um, still um, far to go on many fronts. But I just think that it's, it's, it's really powerful that um, her own granddaughter kind of followed in her footsteps and was graduating in a class wherein there was gender parity um, and that she could see that happening, you know, is also cool, just cool, fun fact. <laughs> yeah. So, so to sum up, uh, I'd, I'd like you both to comment on this. So could we say that uh, here's someone uh, who, who one, uh, had, had a huge impact on the culture just by being who she was uh, and, then, and, and then has had is going to have an impact on, on the Constitution, on constitutional law, 
but maybe, uh, Paul, you're suggesting, given the current you know, large conservative majority, that impact might be felt uh, in the future. I think it will take a while before. I, I think she, some of her dissenting opinions will become majority opinions at some point, but I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 years. Um, it's just, it's going to be a conservative court for, um, for the near future. Okay. Final words, Abigail? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree, but I, I'm, I'm so glad that she wrote such brilliant um, and comprehensive dissents and that we have those um, as, um, you know, as records and as, um, you know, I think inspiring directives in terms of where, you know, where we will go um, in the future. Um, but yeah, I think she's, yeah, I think she's just had an amazing cultural impact um, in terms of particularly for women and girls and thinking about themselves as deserving of equal treatment and flourishing before the law. So yeah, she's amazing. We'll miss her. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great ending, Abigail. Thank you very much. So thanks so much, Abigail and Paul, for an oh, interesting conversation about a really great, great woman. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much, Bill. I've really it was enjoyed, great to talk. Really enjoyed this opportunity. Yeah, to honor you know her work. So thank you for organizing this, Bill. I just love her uh, opinions. It, it, it's it, my favorite opinion of hers is a yeah. concurrence. And it's the it's her concurrence in the Obamacare case because it's so well done in terms of explaining the Commerce Clause. I'm going to look I, at it right now. <laughs> it's the best because John Roberts tries to have this really cramped view of the Commerce Clause so that he can please conservatives, and then he tries to, you know, say that the con that Congress can do um, that Congress could had constitutionally passed the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. under the taxing power. They could really, it's the, the individual mandate that they're concerned about, but he tries to have it both ways and pleases nobody. I mean, he upholds the law, but Ginsburg then writes the, a concurrence that carefully and methodically explains why uh, the Affordable Care Act is completely appropriate under the commerce power. And it, you know, I love it because when I, in my con law class, we end up talking a lot about the commerce clause. And by the time we get to that case, um, you know, I encourage people to think carefully about what Ginsburg says in that opinion. And I usually give them a bigger excerpt of that That's because cool. it's so well done. And you, you can disagree with how expansive the commerce clause has become. Uh, as of today, or really as of, you know, after the New Deal era. But if you want to disagree with her, you pretty much have to reverse jurisprudence going back to the 1930s. And I mean, that, and that's what Thomas wants to do, and some of the others want to do. But, um, but man, that that is, that is really, it's just so the whole opinion, the whole concurrence is just so tight it's just the argument is just right. so well constructed mm. and and, so and abigail's, abigail's right paul we're gonna <laughs> miss her i'm uh, oh, sorry <laughs> are we still we recording can't stop talking about her we can't stop talking about her sorry anyway 
Uh, so anyway, I think we better wind it up. Uh, so thank, thank you again. And thanks to Chris Judge of PC's Office of Marketing and Communications for his help with this podcast. Most of all, thanks to our many listeners.